Support for this episode of The New Disruptors is brought to you in part by Indiegogo. What do Lil Wayne, Black Girls Code, and Humans of New York have in common? They've all raised funds on Indiegogo. Indiegogo has hosted over 100,000 campaigns since 2008, and it distributes millions of dollars every week around the globe. There's no application process or waiting period associated with launching a campaign. You can start raising funds immediately. Listeners, visit tndlikethenewdisruptors.indiegogo.com to get a 25% discount on fees. We're also brought to you this week by New Relic. New Relic gives high fives to all the rule breakers and disruptors. Here's to working late nights, to wearing oversized concentration-enhancing headphones on your furrowed brows. They thank you, and the entire internet thanks you. They'll thank you even further by visiting their site at newrelic.com disruptors for a discount, and I'll tell you more about them later in the program. And if you'd like to become a direct supporter of this podcast, visit patreon.com slash new disruptors. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com. You can become a patron for as little as $1 per month. Thanks this week to patrons Andy McMillan, Andre Matetic, and Abraham Finberg. Welcome to The New Disruptors, a podcast that carefully fills its ruling pen with black ink. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman, the editor and publisher of The Magazine. The New Disruptors is part of the Boing Boing family of podcasts, which you can find at boingboing.net, where you can also find archived episodes. You might also check out Sword and Laser. It's a science fiction and fantasy-themed book club podcast that's hosted by Veronica Belmont and Tom Merritt. Dylan McConus is a prolific Portland, Oregon cartoonist. She constantly is laboring away at a mix between her deeply personal and solo work and projects in collaboration with others, including scripting Scott Kurtz's popular PvP webcomic. She's part of Periscope Studio, which we've talked about in previous podcasts. Her books include Bite Me, A Vampire Farce, Family Man, Volume 1, Outfoxed, and Dance Macabre. 2.0. And we'll talk about those books, how she built her career, and how she's keeping all those plates spinning in the air. Welcome to the podcast, Dylan. Hi. Nice to be here. How are the plates spinning today? Uh, there are several dozen of them. So far, none have hit the floor, so I'm happy. <laughs> we'll see if we can keep them up all, all up during the podcast. And, and uh, So, you know, I said you were prolific, and this is one of the things um, that I don't know if it separates people with freelance careers and those who have jobs or, or how things work, but uh, you do have a lot of stuff going on. Is that a, a tendency of yours? Do you like to have many, many projects, or is it a, um, a necessity that you have so many projects? I... I'm definitely sort of a polymath. I don't like repeating myself. Uh, I think I'm happiest when I'm sort of scrambling up a sheer vertical wall of challenge. Otherwise, I start to just get kind of itchy. So I, I really like to have a bunch of different things going all at the same time. I don't necessarily enjoy the stress that goes along with it, <laughs> but I really love diversity in storytelling and in artwork. So I, I don't know. I, I'm... I'm flirtatious, I guess. Well, so there's a range of stories that you tell. What What's the, do you, and I ask this as one of those deep art questions. So is there a theme that runs through your work? Is there something you come back to again and again? Or is it the ability to try and test out different genres, storytelling, or, or kinds of even tone, you know, humorous versus serious that appeals to you? Uh, I think probably the biggest through line you could find is uh, actually an absence in my work. I'm really bad at writing horribleness. 
Um, but I, a lot of authors or artists whose work I really enjoy are great at just depicting like people who are totally scum of the earth and people stabbing each other in the back and just just gnarly stuff all about the yucky underbelly of life. Uh, and I, I'm, I'm sort of a inveterate humanist. I really like people to care about each other, even if they have radically conflicting goals. I ultimately am not interested in stories where people just want to screw each other over. I'm much more interested in ones where people are passionate about something or they're pursuing something and that brings them into a clash with other people. And the, the same goes for when I'm writing humor. I'm, I'm much more interested in humor that comes from people being themselves in a wacky situation than I am in you know, showing, oh, isn't the world a hideous, grim place? Uh, even when I I'm think, doing dark humor. <laughs> I, th I think our mutual friend, uh, Allison Hallett, who's uh, an editor at the a weekly paper in your fair city of Portland, Oregon, uh, she, when I asked her, because she does, uh, she hosts the Comics Underground in Portland, which is a great, it's a neat thing. I should have her on to talk about it sometime, among her other work, which is uh, uh, like live, cartoonists talking, co comics artists talking live about their work, right, and projecting things and, and being in front of an audience, which you don't usually get. I love it. <laughs> yeah, so Allison said, I asked her once um, a year or so ago, I said, you know, Chris Ware, I can't read him anymore because he makes me too sad. He's so good. He's so good I can't read him. He puts an ache in my heart that I just can't have there all the time. And uh, and I said, are there cartoons I can read that are meaningful, that I will enjoy, that have a good story, uh, that – aren't all horrible <laughs> she said and one of them was outfoxed was your was your short story outfoxed and uh another was bone a bone series and um and i thought that was interesting and so I've, i have read a little bit of bone i gotta go read more but outfoxed is a great tale because it's you know you it's got a bunch of different elements i wonder if we could talk about like, where did outfoxed uh, originate f from because it's got a really unique style to it yeah, it was originally a story that I came up with uh, to pitch to the Flight Anthology, which was uh, a really lovely series edited mostly by um, Kazuki Buishi, who now does the Amulet books. Uh, but there were a bunch of short stories from cartoonists and storyboard artists, all sorts of people from the visual storytelling industry, uh, that all had kind of a collective aim for beautiful fantasy or adventure or interesting Calvin and Hobbes inspired quandaries about human nature. So I, I knew I sort of wanted to do something that was a really tight little short story that had an interesting reversal in it and that had a talking animal. <laughs> because that, that was sort of one of the unofficial themes of the flight anthology was, you know, anthropomorphized creatures or the interaction between people and nature. So I was like, okay, I want to do something in a really simple setting. I want to do something sort of folkloric. I want to have there be a reversal of power status between the characters and I need an animal. Foxes are fun to draw. Uh, and I was out at the beach for a weekend with a friend and that was the story idea I came up with. Uh, it didn't end up getting done in time for the flight anthology, uh, but I finished it on my own a few years later, and it has gone on to great success. It's got a lot of um, elements that I think are intriguing because it seems like you set constraints in front of you. So one of the constraints was the subject matter. You gave yourself some parameters. The other is the palette is just looking at it. It's all a fox. It's all shades of a fox color. Yeah, in the print version, actually the online version too, but uh, the print version is just in two tones of ink. So there's a black and then there's one Pantone spot color, which 
I was very excited about. And actually, my friend Jen Manley Lee, wonderful designer in town, helped me pick out the swatch. But I needed something that could be a bright orangey foxy red and then also be a light European flesh tone at lower saturation. So that was very, very intentionally chosen to be a two-color story that would work well both on a screen and on a page. And the, even the illustration style you chose is um, it's not exactly woodcut, but it's along those directions. I mean, it's not quite woodcut, but it has a very, it's not aus- I guess not austere, but it's very precise. And it's uh, you use a relatively few number of strokes, I guess it is, to, to paint the picture. So it's got the cartoon feel. You've got your outline of the characters in black, so it looks like a you know a comic in that sense. But there's tone in it, but it, it still feels well fleshed out, but it doesn't feel, um, I don't know what the word is. It's, it's, it's not austere. I'm not sure if there's a right word for it, but it's got... It, it, it gives that feeling of an older style than you necessarily had to limit yourself to as a, an online comic. In the digital form, you can do anything you want. There's no cost constraint. Were you thinking about as you designed this and uh, drew it about that it was going to go into print so you needed to have constraints or, or did that come into your thinking at all? I knew that I really wanted to do it as print. My background is in doing stuff for the web. So for me, print is still in, in some way a little bit of an exciting novelty And so this was maybe one of my first projects where I started doing it very intentionally setting it up to be both digital and in print. So some of of those things that I worked in, I did with an eye towards a physical product, uh, but also just wanting to have that feeling of, yeah, like a wood block or just a, a tinted watercolor, like you'd see in an old fairy tale book that only has two color ink. Uh, mm-hmm. One of the artists that I looked at originally for inspiration was the uh, Russian illustrator Ivan Bilibin, who does just this wonderful, uh, art deco is the wrong word, but uh, he does lovely limited palette work of Russian fairy tales. It's very striking. So I kind of, I was aiming for something in between that and, you know, what Jeff Smith does with bone, which is very, very iconic and boiled down. Yeah, I think there's that distinction. Um, you know, I was mentioning like the comic outline. Like there are signifiers that tell people this is a cartoon versus an illustration, or when things blur the line. Uh, do you try to make that distinction in your in your work, or does it come out naturally from the material that you're working with? Yeah, I think cartooning and illustration are often conflated, but are very different disciplines. And I I get frustrated sometimes because there are some very gorgeous comics out there that are just too visually rich to really process because every panel is a complete illustration or a full painting it kind of slows down the pace of reading you know it's like eating a a giant piece of baklava Uh, you know it's sort of hard to get through all of that richness at a reasonable pace so I'm always even if I'm doing a more complicated style or something more stripped down I'm always trying to hit a medium between having something feel visually rich and having it still be a reading experience that you can sort of race through without feeling constipated or bogged down by too much beauty. I think of something like uh, Jim Woodruff who is an incredible um artist but is he doing cartoons and it's often talked about that he's doing comics, but I'm not sure they are comics. I mean, they fit some of the rubrics and and he plays with that, but his gym stuff is ridiculously rich, but, and there is a story there, but it doesn't, it sort of play, I mean, it does play with a lot of different aspects. It's more like something in your, inside your head that he's managed to put onto paper. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think the artistic goals can really vary widely across the comic spectrum. And I, I like playing in both sides of the pool. I think one of the things that was most fun about Outfoxed for me was intentionally playing with the difference between cartoony characters who are very easy to identify with and to buy into 
versus much more illustrated, detailed characters who tend to seem much more separate from you or much mm. more much more solid or you know they're they're a real person, so they're less they're less a projection point for the reader. So the bad guys in Outfoxed are much more uh, intricately drawn. Um, they've got more detail to them. Their faces are more realistically rendered, and one of the characters becomes more realistic over the course of the story. Yeah, um, it's a wonderful story too. And uh, what we should talk about your story a little too is that uh, so your background is uh, you didn't go to a uh, you know a, a school and study art. You studied, according to your biography, history, literature, philosophy, and French. Yeah. Uh, but the thing I know, looking at uh, people who are in the visual arts, uh, most people who are successful in it as adults have been drawing since they were very small. They they just draw obsessively, or they picked it up maybe even in their teenage years. But um, you, you know. How long have you been drawing for? Uh, I'm definitely one of those always been an artist kids. I remember another kid in daycare, summer daycare, was uh, really good at drawing Chester Cheetah, so, you know, the Cheetos mascot. And I remember <laughs> yes. just my seething jealousy and rage that this kid could draw such a good Cheetah. Ugh. Yeah, yeah. So uh, it's always been it's always been my thing. I've always both written and done drawings as well. So the comics offers an ideal combination of both. Well, and there's this um, inflection point, and I've been very interested as somebody who is in his mid 40s uh, and was raised in a point where, like, uh, you know, parents would tell their children, "Don't go into there are a bunch of fields. Like, don't go into comics. Don't become an artist because you will starve. You will <laughs> starve and die." Um, and there, there are actually some great comics in the 1990s and 2000s by people who, basically, telling the story of how even if they have reached some marginal level or, or high level of success selling their work, and, and often, um, you know, more uh, uh, stuff on the the raw side, the uh, like uh, Art Spiegelman end of the spectrum, more alternative comics, uh, those folks would often recount those stories. Oh, my parents said, you know, but I couldn't stop drawing, couldn't stop drawing. But you uh, graduated college in the mid-2000s, and um, I wonder what the world looks like to you coming into a place where the internet existed, where you have uh, role models who, even in 2005, were starting to find their their feet, and now 2014, there's I know there's not a million people making a living, and, and there's a lot, ton of people are making only a part of their living, but I'm wondering what the world looked like at 2005 and how it's changed from then to now for um, someone like you who, who clearly wasn't planning a career in this field. That's an interesting question. That's my way of stalling. <laughs> uh, I think I came around at a really great moment, actually, which was when there was just starting to be this magical transition where people were making a living with digital content or where they were using the digital content to drive making money in the real, the so-called real world. So I was, I was technically getting checks for doing webcomics starting in college, so in, in the early 2000s. Uh, working with Girlomatic.com, which was a subscription-based website that was run by a wonderful guy named Joey Manley, who we really sadly lost way too young this year. Oh. But he was my he was my first paycheck in comics, and while that was in some ways a sort of attempt to reproduce traditional publishing setup on the web, it still suggested you know hey you can you can send JPEGs <laughs> into the universe and in some way be compensated for them. And that was the same time that strips like PvP and Penny Arcade were really starting to get their feet under them. People were starting to quit their day jobs, even though they weren't, you know, putting out books from major publishers or being in the newspaper. They were, you know, getting advertising revenue, selling T-shirts, starting to really have their own following. So 
I think that I came around right when all the avenues started to open up and right when the internet community really came alive. I feel very, I feel very lucky. It's only gotten better since then. There, just, there are so many more ways to cobble together a living than there have been in the past. You know, even just this year, Patreon really caught on. And that's another way that people are looking at, you know, making money off of just producing the creative content. So, your Patreon, your Patreon is an interesting example. But and I'll, I'll come. Let's come back to that too, because I know that someone in your office I've interviewed before is is experimenting with that. Uh, but so, two thousand five. I mean, so you come out in this world that is very different from nineteen ninety five, nineteen eighty five even 2000. I mean, really different. Uh, you had the expectation that, Hey, there might be a way for me to do it. But, but so, you know, you got a degree in a, a traditional, uh, range of liberal arts. Um, I, I have an actual art degree, but you know, I got it from a liberal arts school. So it's, uh, it was in graphic design. Um, but I didn't expect to work in an artistic field. And I'm wondering when you left college, uh, what did you think you would do with your life? What did you think it would break into, uh, for you? <laughs> uh. Uh, let me let me back up a few years and say <laughs> that in high school uh, I was friends with a young man named Emmett Shear, who you may know as the CEO of Twitch. <laughs> yeah, so uh, he, he he figured things out. We all knew he would take over the world, but at, at the time in high school he was like, "You're going to make a living doing comics someday," and I laughed at him. I said, "You can't make a living doing comics. Don't be silly." <laughs> Uh, and I very recently caught up with him again. He was like, I was right. You're making a living in comics. Like, <laughs> Fine. That's you, excellent. You win. Uh, but in terms of what, what the landscape looked like when I got out of college, uh, I knew I was moving to Portland, and that was entirely because I knew people in the comics community here, or people specifically in the web comics community. So I knew I was coming to somewhere where there were going to be other people who knew who I was, who cared about the same nerdy things I cared about. You know, I wasn't, I wasn't moving to Brooklyn with everybody I went to college with. I was sort of following my, my other community, my creative community out to Portland. Let's take a quick break so I can tell you about Creative VIP, one of this week's sponsors. Now, if you've listened to this podcast before, you know I was trained as a typesetter and a graphic designer. I'm a creative person, and it's sometimes hard to get the inspiration I need to come up with new ideas and do something with them. Creative VIP, you could think of them like an exclusive membership club for people like me and you, creative professionals, writers, and designers, to help give them prompts for creativity along with discounts and tools. So what do you get when you're a member of Creative VIP? First off, you get discounts on world-class services from companies like Media Temple, Squarespace, Fontdeck, Verb, Name.com, and dozens of other companies. You can check out their site at creativevip.net slash disrupt to find out the full list. You'll also get discounts on apps that you already love or need to love, and these include programs like Text Expander, Launch Bar, and Backblaze. On top of that, they provide access to a growing library of graphics, vectors, icons, and themes. I don't know about you, but whenever I need an icon or, or something, when I'm building a website or enhancing a post, I can spend way too long looking at royalty-free art, trying to figure out what to license, trying to figure out what the rights are. Their library is part of the subscription. You can just go there and find the thing you need right away and move on. Now, if you become a member at the special elite level, you'll get stuff in a bag every month from companies like Moleskin, Sharpie, Uniball, Moo, Sandisk, and others. Here's the deal. You can save 25% on your membership forever. Take a look at creativevip.net slash disrupt. 
And if you go there, you can claim your 25% discount and become a member. Creative VIP is designed for creative people. So check them out at creativevip.net slash disrupt. Let them know we sent you and get your 25% membership discount. And now back to the podcast. And I should remind people, Portland was actually affordable in 2005. Unlike I mean, now, I know it's uh, people think about Portland has actually become expensive. When I was down there uh, last week, as we record this, um, people are talking all over about rents and people being forced up and out of the city and so forth. But in 2005, Portland was kind of in a slump, and you could actually get cheap rent, and you know, it wasn't the economy hadn't gone bad and so forth. Yeah, no, it was pretty affordable, and I got laid off of every job I had at a, a straight job in Portland. <laughs> but uh, I had some good times. I had some low rents. Yeah, it was it was a good time to come to Portland too. Uh, and, but it, it, you know. you're following other people. So there were a lot of cartoonists there already. I mean, I know now it seems like every other person in, in Portland is either a unicyclist or a cartoonist. But um, even then, there was a. It seemed like there was a rich uh, visual illustration community. Yeah, absolutely. And particularly the comics community. That that had started to happen years before. We've got several publishers here. We've got Dark Horse Comics. We've got Oni Press. So there, there was kind of already a little core community of people who were fairly well established in what they did. And then there's just a wave of youngsters like me moving in. And at, right around that time, it sort of achieved critical mass. So I know people ask all the time about how you like pivot your life. Like you're doing one thing, you're going along and the thing that you're doing may or may not be something you love or like, but you're doing it because you got to pay the rent or it's, it's where you think you're going in life. And then often it sneaks up behind you <laughs> and leaps on you and says, wait a minute, uh, there's this other thing. And as we were talking about, like there might actually be some money behind it now in a way there wasn't before. I'm curious about that path. Did, did that happen to you? Did you have your, you know, let's say real life, uh, uh, jump on top of you all of a sudden and shake you and say, no, no, this is what you should be doing. Was it more gradual? Uh, my studio mate, Jeff Parker accuses me of constantly failing upwards. <laughs> I don't know if that's fair or not. Um, uh, honestly, right after college, I uh, panicked and was thinking about getting a Master of Library and in Information Science degree. That is an excellent degree, though. Yeah, I it's, it's a totally excellent degree, but I probably would have ended up miserable uh, because I, I really, really like independence and creative expression, and libraries are very systematic places, uh, as is the information technology field. So I, I think I've, I probably would have gotten frustrated at some point, but... Uh, Things just kind of kept happening to me at, at a handy clip. I got hired by um, Explain, which is a visual consultancy. They're still out, out running in the world. So I spent two years making cool, weird infographics for all sorts of Fortune 500 companies. That kind of got my feet under me. It proved to me that I could make a living doing creative stuff, uh, that I could stand in front of a room of people who make much higher salaries than I ever will and command their attention and respect. Uh, and then when I got laid off of that job, I, it was right as I was printing my first graphic novel. So I, it was a pretty smooth transition. It was sort of like, well, I, I guess I don't have to quit. <laughs> I'm, I'm just, they're going to hand me severance. This is great. Lucky me. 
Oh, that's fascinating. So it's not that you – that's a great position to be in. And, and, and uh, maybe we can – this is where the, the collaboration and, and the community comes in is uh, you've mentioned a bunch of people that you've worked with or that you respect and, and so forth. So while you're going through this, you're, you know, you're, you're being fired and hired in jobs. You're failing upwards. Uh, where did the community around you or, or did you find a community that helped support you through this? So when you needed answers or, or needed help to achieve each of these sort of steps in your, uh, in your career, were they, were they there or how did you find them? Uh, I mean, I, I had the uh, the web comics, the whole internet community, starting very early on. So there were always people that I could email or you know see on Live Journal. God help me, <laughs> I miss Live Journal. We all miss Live Journal in the in the comics community. Uh, and you know, Twitter was coming up too. But I, I was luckiest in that in Portland, I wound up in the sphere of Periscope Studio, which was Mercury Studio at the time which is a giant collective of comics artists, and I came into their orbit exactly when they were transitioning to a bigger studio space and inviting in a bunch of new people to try out being members to sort of offset the rent and to add new blood into the organization. So I was coming into Periscope every Friday, and I was working at my design consultancy job Monday through Thursday. So when I got laid off, I was just like, hey guys, I'm going to be coming in every day of the week now. (laughs) You know, I already, I we should talk about Periscope because uh, we've talked about them. Uh, Erica Moen was a guest uh, uh, seven or eight months ago now, and uh, I know she's one of your your co-working space people. And, and so Periscope, it's it's a little like co-working, but it, it's a lot more than that too, isn't it? It's it's not just a space; it's a philosophy, a group activity. Uh, yeah, it's sort of a, a weird club, um, or a, a, I think of those Victorian clubs that show up in like Sherlock Holmes. Where like Mycroft Holmes is there and it's totally yes. silent inside and everybody has their favorite. It's sort of like that. It's 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 a collective. It's a creative collective where certain values are agreed upon. But it, it's a really great social space. Um, we share knowledge. We share equipment. We share <laughs> the rent. Uh, we have a mentorship program where everybody contributes tutorials for young professionals who are just out of school. So it, it it's a pretty unusual place, I think. Um, it, and it's a real gift to be a part of it. I try never to take it for granted that I, you know, I get up in the morning, I leave the house, and I walk into a room full of people who get what I do and who can look over my shoulder and go, I, I know how you can make that better. <laughs> <laughs> people to to uh, commiserate with but also to get advice from or to show your work off to when you need a, a boost. Yeah, exactly. I think there's, uh, in the cartooning community, there's a stereotype that comics is a lonely burden. You must be locked alone in a room with only the cat for company, chained to a desk for years on end in solitude. Uh, and uh, that's not necessarily true, at least when you're lucky enough to live somewhere like Portland, where we've got this large community of people who are willing to share space in exchange for you know that social contact and that skill share. Uh, I love it. I, I find it really beneficial to my emotional health and to my creative output, too. I think it has changed a lot because I interviewed a ton of cartoonists in the late 1990s, a bunch of uh, people who did strips and uh, uh, not as many comic book artists um, about when the internet was sort of becoming a thing. And and 
all of them talked about the loneliness and they talked about having to be in studios and locked away and then maybe go someplace where they could find a scanner in those days if they didn't have one or you know maybe a service bureau uh, and they were trying to cope with the amount of attention they were getting because a lot of cartoonists as you know are introverts and they like working alone but uh, but not all of them uh, and like Bill Ammond is a great example who uh, does a Foxtrot and he kind of was working on his own in his uh, studio um, you know for many many years and then the internet uh, came along and he got sucked into it and now he's kind of internet famous and he's involved in a lot of stuff beyond his strip but it was a lonely profession I love the idea that you that that it's can be different if you want it to be different that you have a group of cohorts yeah and I, I think the fact that I really start sort of came of age as somebody who was going to try to to really pull this off and have comics be a career I came of age during the internet so it was already a communal activity I was already passing stuff back and forth with you know long distance friends or putting them on forums and getting feedback I mean I, I was hanging out with Scott McCloud at Comic-Con as a teenager. That was, you know, looking back on it, I'm like, wow, that's, that's, that's pretty cool. <laughs> so I didn't, I, I didn't have an understanding of it as this isolating, so, you know, thankless solo activity. It was already something to be shared. So, I, yeah, I, I really appreciate having that mindset. I, it, it's not for everyone. There are definitely people who they're really only going to get stuff done and they're only going to be happy if they are in total fortress of solitude. Uh, and I, I respect that, but that's not me. I start talking to the cats, like, instantly. As someone has been working in a basement for the last three years, after about uh, 15 years of working in collaborative spaces, uh, I don't even have a cat. So there's a problem there. Oh, no. <laughs> I'm, I'm working. I have, a, I have a plan to get out of the basement for exactly the reasons – you say after many years. This is this is the uh, the podcasting is obviously my socializing from uh, from the basement. But um, but that collaboration it seems to be a theme with what you do is you have your own work and and a fair amount of it now. Um, and the, God, there's so many things to talk about related to that. So maybe we should start with. Um, uh, so you you fell you fell upward you fell upward into what you're doing and you're talking about the first book you were making. I know that um, one of the big things you did in the last couple of years and that consumed a lot of your time was the Kickstarter campaign that you launched back in. When did you launch the campaign? I know it um, in 2012, right? And it took uh, nine or ten months to, to fulfill it. But um, tell me about this this campaign. It wasn't early in Kickstarter's history. Things were well had moved full along at that point. But uh, it seemed like you wanted to make a big uh, put a big stake in the sand about where you were going. What was the intent of the of the Kickstarter? So I had already self-published two of my graphic novels, uh, the Bite Me, a Vampire Farce, which I had started in high school and finished in college, and it was it was time to do a print edition. So I had already done a few low print run digital prints of that, and they had sold out. Uh, and I had done the first volume of my ongoing graphic novel, Family Man, and I had funded that just through pre-orders on my own website, hoping PayPal wouldn't suddenly wander in and yell at me. Uh, so I had already printed two books. I knew that I could do it. I was familiar with pre-press uh, and, to some extent, the fulfillment, too. And uh, I wanted to work with a friend of mine who's acted as a print broker to a whole bunch of cartoonists, George Rohack. Uh, he's behind a whole lot of the successful Kickstarter comic campaigns you might have run across. Mm. So I, I basically sat him down. I was like, you're going to get too busy to even consider working with me. Uh, or having a sandwich with me in the same building for that matter. So I'm going to grab you right now. I really want to print this book and maybe this thing also. I can't seem to get a publisher interested. And he said, well, the more you print, the cheaper it gets to print. <laughs> so I was like, 
Okay, let's do three books. I have a little art book. I have a one-off short story, and I have a, a full graphic novel I want to do a reprint of. Let's just do all three at the same time in the same campaign. What could go wrong? Nothing. It sounds like a wonderful plan, but oh, okay. So in what? retrospect, it was psychotic to decide that I was going to lay out, do pre-press, send to press, and fulfill three different book runs, all in different formats, all in different binding methods, and in different color modes at the same time. Uh, well, yeah. so that, that's actually a good um, a good question about that. Um, you wanted to do all three at once. Was that a concern that you would never be able to go back to the well again? Because some people have that concern. They figure, I've got one chance, and then and then they find that it's maybe not one chance. But I've got one chance to get this audience in, to raise the money I need, to do the thing. Uh, did that drive it, or did you just say, ah, i got this work, let's do it all at once? Part of it was just wanting to have a, a, a diversity of offerings. So the big book I was reprinting was Fight Me, and I knew a lot of people already have copies of this, you know, even if they were lower quality or they're not going to be as awesome as this new anniversary edition, they still just might be happy with their old one. They don't want to buy a new one. So I really wanted to put some other new things in print to entice people who might not want a new copy of that particular book. So Outfoxed had done hugely well online. Uh, I believe I raked in like $10 in PayPal donations. But it made the rounds. Like it to, I can still go to a convention now and say, oh, I did Outfoxed. And people go, oh, I read that comic. Like, yeah, haha, you did. So I knew, I knew that there would be a pretty decent demand for a print edition of that. And I'd done it with print in mind. Uh, and then I had this weird little series of uh, spoofs of medieval death art. That I, <laughs> that I really had enjoyed doing just on a whim and realized could be a super adorable tiny art book for people ju who just, you know, have the same strange eclectic tastes as I did. So the goal was to make it a campaign that had a little something for everyone. No matter what part of my body of work you were interested in, there was going to be a book in there that you would probably want. And some people would come to it because they wanted to support you, that they maybe had read online. I mean, I know there's campaigns I support where um, sometimes I just give the money. I'm like, uh, 25 bucks. Like, I don't need a reward because, you know, I have enough physical things or I like reading it online. But I got pleasure out of this and I want the artist to do more. So I assume you have some people came in and said, like, oh, this is the time when I can say thank you to Dylan for the work she's already produced. Yeah. Yeah, you know, a lot of people really just did want the physical books, though, which was great because mm -hmm. it meant I was getting inventory out of my office. Uh, I had made sure to have a PDF version up there, too, so people who just wanted to contribute could still, you know, get something out of it that they wouldn't be able to just access on the web. So, And that was high-resolution PDFs that look super great on a, a delicious iPad. I uh, I appreciate looking at your Kickstarter page, having just written a long article, many thousands of words about crowdfunding and taxes, that even in 2012, you're clearly um, a good business person, or you got good advice as well. Yeah, uh, I know you're married to a lawyer, so maybe that helps. <laughs> I am. But... <laughs> But uh, lawyers don't usually do a good at spreadsheets. No, yeah. she loves spreadsheets. I'm I am blessed. I'm I'm married to the wonderful attorney Katie Lane, who runs a wonderful advice blog for freelancers who are interested in getting oh. better at negotiating. I will put uh, that in the show notes. Yeah, it's called she, work made for hire. I know people who hire your wife as their attorney as well. We have mutual friends and are delighted <laughs> delighted Indeed. to have actual good legal help. Um, but that, you know, this is one of the things that bites people. But uh, it seems like you did a lot of planning on this, and I'm curious how it all worked out because you thought about this. You've got information there. You gave a lot of disclosure for people. You know, why do I need this money? This has to go to tax because I have to pay it. 
up front because I have to pay the tax and I'll get it. But I mean, you explain to people where it's going. So they didn't, you know, people sometimes, this is two years ago, almost two years ago. Would you explain that much about the tax and the funding now? Do you feel the time has come and gone where you need to tell people as much about where the money goes? No, I think it's always a good thing to do. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, people who don't care won't read it. It's no, it's not an impediment to them contributing to the campaign. Other people who are really looking at this as a transaction, who really want to get their thing out of it, it's not just a, yay, you seem neat, they want the book, Mm -hmm. Uh, that gives them, you know, a sense of security, like, oh, you've really thought this out, I'm not just throwing my dollars at your vague dream. Um, And, you know, I I think that's just a kind thing to do to an audience, um, to provide them with all the information they could possibly want. I mean, I've I've contributed to campaigns that don't say a whole ton about, you know, how they're going to actually use it. But I really like it when people do that because it just it, it gives me insight into their process and. I, I like feeling like I'm contributing to that exact specific gnarly little thing that they need to pay a lot of money to get done. Let me pause to tell you about New Relic, one of this week's sponsors. So New Relic wants me to tell you first, thank you on their behalf. They want to say a big thank you to all the data nerds out there who are building all the great stuff that we know and love. They're sending a shout out to the developers, the software geeks, the code jockeys, to those brave few who see things differently. They want to give high fives to the rule breakers and the disruptors who work late nights, who spend their time developing things that the entire internet knows and loves. Now, what's cool about New Relic is that they help everyone's software work better. If you're in any business these days, you're you're in the software business. It powers our apps, it runs our databases, it manages our accounts, and it runs e-commerce sites and email programs. So when software breaks, everyone loses. New Relic helps you improve your software performance so your users have a better experience and your business is more successful. How's that for a win-win? Now you can go to their site at newrelic.com slash disruptors and get a custom howdy and a free t-shirt. So visit New Relic, which offers an all-in-one web application performance management tool that lets you see performance from the end user experience through servers and down to each line of application code. Newrelic.com slash disruptors. Let them know we sent you. And by the way, New Relic says, thank you. And now... Back to the podcast. I, I always like to ask about lessons learned from crowdfunding because there are so many, even though we think we know what we're doing. Yeah. And uh, having just gone through myself a, a project, a single book, uh, but um, maybe about 60% more money and people, so not totally out of scale, mm-hmm. and it was offset printed as well. So, uh, you know, I'm here, you know, and I don't say crying. It's like I'm just I'm at the I'm at the, the I'm getting the shakes from it almost being over finally. Yeah. And you've had some time now. It's been uh, um, over a year, I think, more than a year since you uh, or getting towards a year since you finished some of the final stuff. The shakedown, the postmortem. What did you plan that worked exactly as you hoped? What didn't and bit you? Uh, I actually got a huge kick in the shins right when it. I was just about to cross the finish line so that I found out that there was a huge print error in the entire run of Bite Me. So, (laughs) yeah, yeah, (laughs) it was awful. And it was my fault, too. I had uh, forgot, I had somehow dropped out an entire spread from the book, and there was one page that was repeated. So, I I mean, the book looked fantastic. It was a beautiful volume, but it just, it had the wrong number of pages in it and was missing a chunk of story. So I had to go back and go back to my printer and, at cost, 
do an entire reprint of the oh whole run. And I had already wow. sent out a bunch of them. So basically, yeah. I had to stop in my tracks, uh, you know, basically gut my savings account because I didn't want to. I didn't want to go back to backers for help on this. It was it was just totally my bad. It happens whenever you're printing something. There sometimes you just make errors. So I just had to go back, reprint the whole book, and sort of start over again, fulfill all the packages I could that didn't have that book in it. Uh, and yeah, it was a real trial. There were tears were shed um, by oh me. My. Yeah, it was it was pretty awful. Um, you know, the crowdfunding experience was fantastic. People were incredibly supportive and understanding, and like they thanked me for explaining what had happened. And uh, so that that part was great. Uh, I learned that you do reach a point of exhaustion <laughs> where you need to outsource some of your final quality control. Oh, God. I call it – it's like print blindness or proofreading blindness. And I, we have a proofreader for the magazine. And so for our book, uh, I turned to this proofreader and I budgeted uh, – you know, like, I forget what, like $1,000 was part of the budget for the scale of book we were doing so that she would spend X hours looking over everything, even though these stories had already run, even though I'd edited them. And, you know, and she found 5,000 things. They were all tiny periods here and there. I shouldn't say 5,000. There's just a ton. <laughs> the detail. I'm sitting here. I'm going to make a flipping sound. Those are the sound. I don't know if you can hear that. Yeah, sound yeah. of proofs. This is the stack of proofs from the printer uh, for the book. That um, These are the, the, the so-called blue lines, which are now printed from laser printers. It's all very confusing <laughs> in the modern world. No longer printed in diazo process. Uh, that need to go back. You know, they, Tomorrow is the deadline as we speak to make corrections and found, again, a handful of things at this stage. But yeah, if you only have one set of eyes or even if you bring somebody else in, it's so easy to do that because you're exhausted. You've, you've given everything you have and then, and then that happens. So I'm so sorry. Yeah, yeah oh, it's but, okay. I, 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 I came out the other end. I have a lot of people who, uh, who love me and want to see me succeed. So, I mean, I'm, I'm past it now and uh, great lessons learned. I, I did not die. It's kind, of, it's kind of nice to have something horrible happen and then be like, oh, I'm, I'm still here. Okay. Cool. And what's the, then the aftermath, too, is we were talking a little bit before the podcast. I was joking that one of the nice things about doing print books, or actually print books and ebooks, is, and ebooks make it even easier, is that you have this uh, long tail effect for yourself. Like you, you do a big thing like the Kickstarter and you shoot a bunch out, but then you can sell the things indefinitely. Have your books had, have they had a material impact after the Kickstarter, or did the Kickstarter provide really most of the impetus and now it's a trickle? So. How I approached the Kickstarter, and this was under the advice of George Rohack as well, was this is just to fund the print run, and the money is going to really come over the, the long span of time after yes. the campaign, having these books to sell directly to readers. You know, the, all three of these print runs were completely paid off by that initial Kickstarter audience. So now, you know, every book I sell is, is pretty much just profit. So... The fact that I'm going to have these books for a while is is kind of a great thing. <laughs> I don't have to worry about reprinting this material for a long time. You know, previously I'd done small digital print-on-demand runs, and you can't really make a whole lot of money off of that. Whereas, you know, even if I have these books for the next ten years, that's a that's still a very real source of income for me. If I go to a convention and I sell 25 copies at twenty dollars a piece, that 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 ain't nothing. <laughs> 
Well, I should point that out too to people who don't do the rounds of conventions and so forth is that you're in a unique market. I mean, you're, you're not an itinerant salesperson, but you, your life has parts of that, right? You do go from place to place. You do carry boxes of books with you and you sell stuff at these events. If you do a book reading or there's something, anytime you have an opportunity, uh, my friend Matt Boers, a mutual friend, also a Portland cartoonist, also did a Kickstarter. He, he printed a ton of extra books of the thing he did. And I know that he's sold them all over the place. He's done very well post Kickstarter, maybe even better in some ways than the Kickstarter in terms of, uh, of scale, but having the venues, you didn't have to go and beg comic book stores to sell them. You can go and sell them directly to people and pocket a hundred percent of those proceeds. Yeah. I, you know, there's a strange paradox with the comics market where it was already very fractured and kind of broken. You know, I, I look at major publishing and they sort of had this this idyllic period of having these mega blockbusting selling books and uh, you know giant chain stores that could just push a ton of product. And now that the the reading market is fragmenting, everybody's kind of flipping out. Oh yeah. Uh, you know, and e-readers as well. Like, and nobody nobody knows what to do. Nobody can see more than you know a couple years into the future and what that market is going to look like, how it's going to run, how many different places people can buy these books. Whereas comics, the bottom kind of dropped out a long time ago, and people like me don't have a lot of access to distribution. There, there really aren't. There, there isn't a giant set of publishers in with you know with Manhattan offices who are waiting to hand you wads of cash unless you're doing a very specific kind of project. So I, I think in a way we we were all just ready to try anything. And the direct sales at a convention, you know, there's no middleman. <laughs> Nothing can well, go wrong. It's you, the rise it's you of the and the table. Has the rise of the convention come in part because of the that change in distribution? Because when I was a kid, there were very few. You know, the internet didn't exist. Well, exist in some form when I was a kid, maybe. Uh, <laughs> but, but you know, there, there are some Star Trek conventions and things like that. And then, you know, Comic-Con has a long history. Uh, but I feel, especially in the last few years, that more and more uh, uh, science fiction, fantasy, comic books, all kinds of things in that related field, things that are used to be very geek culture and niche, and you'd have uh, you know one store in one corner of town that sold those kinds of things. Now I feel like there's a million events that are going on, and um, and talking to Matt, like he's traveling. I think I don't know how many he did last year, ten or twelve, uh, and he could have done tons more. Is there been a rise? Is that just my perception as I get into the community, or are there more events that you can go to now and, and sell your work and meet fans and so forth? Yeah, I definitely get the impression that Comic Cons in general are a really surging phenomenon in the states, and I I, I call comic conventions a movable feast because you know whichever one I turn up to, there I am. I'm at the con. Uh, and they, you know, they all have very different sizes and flavors and focuses. You know, I do a show like Emerald City Comic Con, which is, you know, it's it's big. It's a giant echoing hall. There are media displays. But there's also an area that's very much dedicated to comics and comics creators. And I go to shows like the Small Press Expo in Maryland, which is in a single hotel ballroom. And you have people there selling, you know, hand-stapled comics and a little illustration. So it's very, there's a very wide range of what, shows represent and the audience they're reaching. Uh, but I, I feel like all of them at some point are um, striving to be the, the internet made, made tangible. Um, we're all going to visit a place that we hang out in sort of virtually, and now we can come here and we can live there for a couple of days. <laughs> 
Oh, that's that's the well. A bunch of people I know just got back from Gallifrey One, the Doctor Who convention, which I think okay. I have to go to next year because it sounds like a total hoot. <laughs> um, and a lot of people I really like go to that. Then in the Northwest, we've got Emerald City Comic Con in, in Seattle. We've got uh, Rose City. It's Rose City Comic Con, I think, or Rose City. Yep, the uh, Rose City Comic Con is partnered with Emerald in, City Comic Con in Portland. Now, we've got in terms of like geekery things, we've got PAX, which is a seventy thousand person uh, uh, gaming event in Seattle. You've got, I mean, XOXO as a conference brings a bunch of people. It's hundreds attending and maybe thousands around the edges to the, the marketplace there. It, uh, there's Max Fun Con. There's Joko Cruise Crazy as a bunch of people like the Double Clicks and Jonathan Colton mm-hmm. out there now. And I know these aren't all comics, but it's sort of yeah. part of this kind of geek community that stretches from comics to music to uh, all kinds of creative things now. There just seems like a lot more places where we all get together in person. Yeah, well, I mean, there's so many more ways to get work to people. You know, you can make something that has an audience of 10, but that audience of 10 can find it. And I think the, the shows reflect the, the, the growth in just pure content and niche content, where you can go somewhere and, and find all five weird little things that you're super into all in one place. So, you know, I, I have friends who are, you know, they feel sort of uncomfortable or edged out if they're at a really big commercial Comic-Con where, you know, like people who were in Stargate Universe or the special guests. And I'm like, I don't care if somebody comes up to me dressed like a Doctor Who character. If they buy a book from me, it's all good. Like, I like that stuff too. Uh, you know, wherever I fit in this bizarre Venn diagram, I'm, I'm happy to be here. And I, I feel that way about my work too, right? Like, I, my main project is sensitive historical fiction about a German graduate student in the 18th century who falls in love <laughs> with a lady librarian with a with a dark intercultural religious secret. Uh, but I also write for PVP, which is you know it's fundamentally a newspaper style gag comic about a bunch of people working at a game publisher, and I get to make I get to make cat jokes, right? So I. You know, the extremes of that are really interesting too. As you talk about, I mean, you had to build your own career uh, person by person, right? You build up uh, a readership and fans, and you get a Kickstarter, and and along the way, you acquire people because people like what you do, and you're responsive to people and so forth. So you build up your own audience. But PVP is one of the like, um, you know, the the behemoths of the industry. It's an early web comic that uh, uh, has an enormous readership. It's one of the things I think they're probably the top. And along with Penny Arcade and a handful of others that just are massively popular, how did you get sucked in with, with Scott Kurtz? Because he was his own man for a long time. He was his own one-man shop, and, and he works with other people. In fact, uh, they're still doing – he and Penny Arcade still have In the Trenches that they, they collaborate on. Mm-hmm. I believe that's still – they're doing Seasons. I think that's still running too. They did another uh, season of it. But so how did you get sucked into, uh, into working with a one-man band uh, who, who had all that popularity? What, what brought you in there? Uh, I was a PvP reader. I, I had been reading the strip for a long time. I really enjoyed Scott's cartooning, and I really liked that it was it was character based humor. If, you know, if some if a character was a jerk, they weren't an asshole. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I enjoyed the strip to begin with, um, and there was a point a couple years ago where he decided to switch one of his characters from having sunglasses on all the time, which obscured his eyes, so you could never see what his eyes were doing. He decided that it was time to sort of represent this character making a transition, and so he gave him clear glasses so you could finally see his eyes. Uh, and I thought he just, he as a reader, I loved how he did it, because it was really just, it was thoughtful and funny, and it was very character-focused. Uh, so I, I did some fan art of it. Uh, we had his mailing address in the studio because he'd bought some art from my studio mate Steve Lieber at a point. 
And we, you know, we had met a couple of times just like at the same parties or whatever. So uh, I, I did some fan art of this character of uh, Brent Sienna, did a lovely little watercolor painting uh, of him with giant blue eyes. And I wrote, que bello, <laughs> uh, in Italian underneath. And I just sent it off. I was like, maybe this will make him laugh. Uh, and he got the art and was talking about it with his, uh, his business manager, Corey Cassoni. He used to be the um, the PR guy at Oni Press, one of the Portland comics publishers. And a few months later, Scott injured himself on a patch of ice and oh, no. basically <laughs> literally on his back on all sorts of painkillers. He was working on launching uh, the Table Titans comic. So he basically was looking at not being able to do PvP for a couple of weeks. Uh, and Corey called me. Corey lives here in Portland and had met me several times. Uh, so he just called me and was like, hey, you read PvP, right? Do you want to do you wanna write and draw two weeks of strips for us? So I did. It was a blast. Uh, we all had a really fun time. And I just sent scripts into Scott and he okayed them. And then I would upload the art a few hours later. <laughs> uh, and I think everybody had so much fun. And Scott was so weirded out by how well I knew the character. <laughs> They were like, do you It's like a foster parent. Yeah. Just, I'll just move in and take over your family for a while. Yeah, he's like, this is bizarre. Like, you, you know how these people work. I'm like, yeah, I've been reading them for a long time. They're, they're well-built machines. Uh, so they just asked me if I wanted to make it a permanent gig. Uh, we've been doing that for, yeah, just, just about a year now. It's really fun. We, you know, have conferences. We talk about storylines. Uh, we toss stuff back and forth over Google Drive. Uh, I have a wonderful time because I get to write stuff, and then Scott Kurtz draws it, which is like oh, that's fun for you. Yeah, different uh, change of pace. Yeah, it's it's a magic surprise every time. Uh, I love writing for other artists because it's like a magic box. <laughs> I I want I want to emphasize this thing because I'm going to tell you uh, the thing that you did that fan art like that's I want to say that people underestimate. How you put yourself out there in a maybe positive way or – I mean many things that have happened in my life have happened because I asked somebody at the right moment or I sent something in. I said uh, my writing career got started because I sent an angry letter to an editor at a trade magazine saying that he was completely wrong about everything and explained why. And he said, oh, well, you should write a feature about this. And that's how I got started as a tech journalist. Yeah, <laughs> tech I, don't think journalist. That, I don't think that's that uh, – that's crazy. Um, I we, you know, we get – these uh, mentorship kids in, one of the things we really try to emphasize to them is the the best way to succeed in this industry is not to take some particular business angle. It's to make friends by, you know, telling people that you're a fan and by showing that in concrete ways and telling people what you appreciate about their work. And that is going to get you so much further than, you know, any sort of like advertising strategy or posting on Reddit or whatever. It's you know, it's a small community. There aren't too many rungs on the ladder. So you you really just got to reach out and <laughs> stick your neck out there. Don't be hurt if you don't get uh, hugs back. But I, so many good things have come to me. Yeah, like you said, just because I sent fan art or I bought a book from somebody at a show and gushed about it. Uh, you know, I've... I've gotten to meet a lot of people who are my artistic heroes, and then they let me sleep in their basement. <laughs> <laughs> no, 
that's awesome. But that, you know, I I want to circle back to something that I, I don't know if we talked about explicitly, but uh, I'm just, I'm going to do uh, uh, my cavelling now, which is that um, I think you you're a wonderful artist, and I almost feel like that's understated that we don't even talk about that. The reason you're having success in part is because not just because of a good planning and business and understanding, putting yourself out there. It's because you do beautiful work and it has uh, and you have multiple unique styles. And I wonder for some people, it's a frustrating thing because they figuring out whether their work is good or not, where their expertise is, where they can they bring their vision. And when we do this show, I talk to people who are, you know, often anywhere from, um, I say successful, but successful can just mean happy. It doesn't have to mean um, <laughs> financially successful. And we measure it in different ways. You know, Marion Call is a great uh, musician and she talks about making, essentially doing about minimum wage, but she's very happy with it because she's doing exactly what she wants to do. And she's trying to get herself out of that hole, but She's not displeased with what's been going on. Uh, and then there's other people who, you know, the Jonathan Coltons or so forth or, um, who are actually making good money. We know that. And they're also very happy with what they do. But I think there's this issue about how you figure out your own competence. I mean, how did you understand that what you were doing was good, that you felt like it was something you could share with other people and that you felt when you looked at other people's work that you knew your work was up to or above the level of that? Uh, well, I think one of the nice things about the internet is that you you don't actually ever need to have that moment. <laughs> you can just put work online, <laughs> and if enough people say, this is neat, do more, it's permission to continue, or it's encouragement. It's, it's For as many people out there are really excited about stomping on work that they don't like, or saying, oh, this sucks, you should quit, uh, most people are really enthusiastic, and if you if you just put something out there... It won't necessarily get a big audience, but you'll probably get some good feedback. So I think I just kept making stuff, and people kept liking it in, you know, solid enough numbers that during my darker hours I could be like, okay, <laughs> I'm probably not the worst creator on earth. <laughs> there seems are, to be something you, here. Are you horribly self-critical, as many creative people, including myself, are, or do, can you have, can you accept the value of your own work when you look at it? Uh, it, it depends on the time of day and on the project. Mm. Um, I yeah. think I think projects that are completely my own, where it's a story that's totally germinated inside of me, I just do it because I really want to do the story. So projects like Family Man or um, I'm working on a middle grade uh, graphic novel pitch right now, those are things where I'm doing all of the work. Like I'm, I'm creating the sunlight and the ocean and the trees below. And, <laughs> uh, you know, I recognize that these are projects that I adore but that, that aren't built to be, you know, commercial or to, you know, tap some particular need that I see out there. Those are really hard. You, you really just have to create momentum for yourself and then keep showing up even when you, you feel really anxious you're not doing the right thing. You know, when I'm doing something like PvP or I'm doing, uh, I'm writing a book for another publisher that's maybe for a licensed movie or I'm doing illustrations for somebody else's work, I find those jobs much more relaxing because mm. the, the burden's not all on me. I just get to play. Uh, I, I get to be an interpreter. I get to throw the ball back to somebody. So I really, I really enjoy collaborative projects because they're an easing of that burden <laughs> of responsibility for creative quality. 
I got to say, one of the nice things about writing for The Economist, which has got a wonderful editorial staff and is, and they're really delightful people to work with, is when you don't get a byline, which is true in all the print ones, there's something incredibly freeing about not being responsible for having your name on it, that it's a collaborative effort, even though you're responsible for making the work, but that other people are involved and that you get a share in it, it's not solely you. And there's something about that that's nice as a change, too. Yeah, it's nice to be able to take pride in work without being neurotic about what it all means. Um, and, you know, I think about, like, the back in the monastic era when you had, you know, monks or laborers creating cathedrals and, you know, they didn't sign anything. But somehow these immense projects were still completed clearly with great artistry and passion. So, uh, you know, as, as much as I'm an advocate for creators getting credit wherever possible and for, you know, originality being recognized and people doing their own work as opposed to just always doing somebody else's vision, I, I also, I think I'm always going to be working on collaborative projects with other people just because it's so, it's fresh air in your system and it's a chance to not be so obsessed with, is this my brand? <laughs> Will this book be immortal? It's like, no, who cares? Just write the dang thing. Well, let me let's uh, let's finish with one question, which is a little more businessy and practical. But we um, this is about the future a bit too. Is uh, we talked earlier about Erica Moen, uh, one of your studio mates, who does Ojoy oh Sex Toy, and I'll link in my interview with her in the show notes. Uh, she um, tried out uh, Patreon, uh, which I actually use for this podcast as well. It's a uh, interesting kind of crowdfunding where you get. Uh, people pledge to back you whenever you do a thing or a month passes if you want to do a, a monthly thing. And uh, I know Zach Wienersmith mm -hmm. has had this crazy success because uh, with a uh, uh, Saturday morning breakfast cereal where he's – what is his total mm -hmm. now? It's nuts. It's And he has a massive audience. It's uh, $7,700 a month is where his current level of pledges is at. And he had a goal that he set for it. And um, Erica launched this recently as a way to supplement what she's doing with um, Ojoy sex toy and she's got about 428 bucks now per comic which is great it's you know it's people who want to support her and she uh this is a mechanism where she doesn't have to go out and be constantly pitching people where does that fit into your thinking because you've got so many different piles of things you've got collaborative work where someone's paying you you've got work that you're producing and then and then selling in the form of books or other things um this patreon or things like this on a recurring basis have a place in where you want to go yeah, it's something I've I've certainly been considering. Uh, I I don't really like being a beta tester <laughs> for stuff because I don't have a I don't have a huge native audience. My readers are super loyal, but they're they're not a gajillion of them. So I sort of don't want to lead them off a cliff. Uh, but something like Patreon, I think, is really compelling because it suggests the possibility of being paid just to do the actual work as opposed to being paid for the merchandise of the work or the lack of advertising on the work. And I think that's part of what Erica was really excited about was the opportunity to just make comics and get compensated for it by people who just, they just love the work. They don't necessarily need extra stuff. They just want to support her, you know, her professional career. And that's, that's certainly something I'd be interested in pursuing, but I, you know, I, it's not so much that I have a lot of irons in the fire. It's more that I have like an iron in every fire in the county. <laughs> <laughs> so I, you know, I, I try to reach out and work with comics publishers. I'm really looking at working with traditional publishers, uh, working with collaborators on creator-owned stuff, uh, working on my own creator-owned things that I publish digitally and then that I self-publish in print. 
for me, I don't really, I don't really have an ethos about where the money comes from or, you know, what the final format of the project is. I just have to be passionate about it and I have to be able to pay the mortgage. <laughs> I, I hear that. And this is, so this is, it's, it's that mix of things that lets you do what you want to do. It seems like you have a lot of control over your career and your life right now. Uh, wow. I don't know if I would describe it as a lot of control, but I've got, I've got a lot of, uh, a lot of seeds out there in the field and, you know, whichever ones end up sprouting, I'm going to be thrilled. I, I think, I think that's the answer for a lot of people is, you know, being willing to diversify and willing to wait and see what ends up being a big su- success or what really ends up working out. Something that's perfect for you for five years on year six might suddenly just be burdensome or maybe it doesn't make the money it used to. So being willing and able to switch how you work or who you work for, I think I, I think that kind of adaptability, that kind of agility to be corporate speak about it is really helpful as a, as a contemporary creator. Uh, it makes a lot of sense. And it's the diversity too is that is that you're flexible and diverse so that one thing goes away, you're not stuck, that you're not, oh, the thing I was making 90% of my living from is now dead. And and what do I do tomorrow when I get up? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's like the difference between being a ballerina and being a triathlete. You know, it's <laughs> it's great if you are the prima ballerina who makes crazy dollars and you know retires at thirty five and you're set for life. But uh, you know, maybe you're going to have a longer career if you know you're a, a reasonably good triathlete and you've got more diverse skills. If one thing sort of drops out for you, you can bulwark it with one of your other skill sets. Well, I think you're maybe aiming too low. I think you're the you're running the decathlon right now, and All that can right, be your it. motto: Dylan McConus, decathlon uh, cartoonist. <laughs> and um, well, so th- thank you for talking about uh, about what you do and how you do it. Thanks for being on the podcast. Oh, my pleasure, Glenn. You can now support the production of this podcast directly at Patreon.com/slash New Disruptors. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash New Disruptors. Support us at a level that starts at $1 per month. At higher levels, you can get our thanks on the air, t-shirts, and more. You can also sponsor this show. Visit podlexing.com, P-O-D-L-E-X-I-N-G, for more details about how to get your product or service in front of the attractive and clever listeners of The New Disruptors. Our theme music is by Jeff Tolbert, who you'll find at jefftolbert.com. And our audio engineer is Michael Warner. Our podcast audio is hosted by SoundCloud. We're part of the Boing Boing family of podcasts. We're also a production of The Magazine, an electronic periodical for curious people with a technical bent. Find out more and read free articles at the-magazine.org. This podcast is licensed under the Creative Commons by NCND 3.0 license. Feel free to distribute it intact and with attribution to us by linking back to our site. We only ask you don't offer it for sale. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman. Please join us again next time. Thanks for listening. <laughs>